Hey there, and welcome to the Bakingish Podcast. This is a safe space that combines the curiosity behind the DSM-5 and a passion for baking into one place. Join along as we discover the ins and outs of our minds, go through diagnostic material, <laughs> see the dark corners of the Urban Dictionary, and end up with a delicious treat to share at the very end. I'm your host, Ren Newman, and I've long dealt with depression and anxiety, but baking and understanding were my way out of it. Now, my passions lie with people and the human condition. I want to be able to explore more of that with you, to build a community of accepting, lifelong explorers. So what do you say? Let's be curious together. Hey everyone, how's your week going? I hope everyone's been able to get some rest. For me, it's been pretty uneventful, but also super tumultuous at the same time, mainly because of things that have happened over the weekend, the past weekend. It's all good. Things are continuing on and we're in fall, finally. Depending upon where you're at, it may not feel that way yet, but where I'm at in Texas, it is a steady 70 degrees or 26 degrees Celsius about, and it's literally perfect. It actually feels like fall this year, and I don't think I felt that for a good long time, probably since I was little, which goes to show just how much climate change is having an effect on our environment. Just in that there aren't really seasons anymore, everything has melded together, and change in weather is not as drastic as it used to be. When I was a kid, I remember having snow that would stick to the ground by February, and seeing the leaves change, and making leaf piles, and you you can't really do that anymore because everything changes so differently like the rates are not consistent at all it's like trees freak out and then lose all their leaves at once or it's a slow decline and so it's been nice to feel like there's a genuine fall crisp sharp undertone to the air this year but i digress as we head into fall it means that we're going to start looking for those old foods and traditions that we find comforting i know in china it's about to be their autumn festival which is a time when people eat a lot of mooncakes and take time off to go be with their families it's about to be halloween in the u.s in a month so that's fun some of the foods that we turn to tend to be a little bit more heavy and that's totally okay if you live in the south you have probably had a kolache. You probably know what they are, but this week we're going to be taking a look at gluten-free and vegan kolaches, which from a technical standpoint, I guess you can't really call it a kolache because it doesn't have that yeasty flavor or <laughs> the characteristics that make a kolache what it is. And depending upon the culture you're in, kolaches are different things. So traditionally, it's usually like a brioche dough with, or an enriched dough, I should say, with some sort of filling it's usually sweet so here in texas you usually see sausage filling or savory filling but traditionally they're sweet so it's like peaches or apples or plums etc and they have those types too but generally if you go to like a donut shop you're getting a sausage roll they call it a kolache but that's what most people associate so this week we're going to be looking at that kind of kolache which i guess could be called a sausage roll but it's the same recipe that you can use to put in fruit fillings or other interesting fillings like rum raisin or dates and pistachio just it's an enriched dough with which you can pretty much fill it with anything. For the dough, you're going to need 620 grams or four and a half cups of gluten-free bread flour. I usually use Steve's or Bob's. You want to switch it up, you can use the King Arthur pizza crust flour. It's kind of similar. Then you'll need five tablespoons of sugar, a teaspoon of fine sea salt, a teaspoon of garlic powder, a teaspoon of onion powder, and an eighth of a teaspoon of ground cumin, mushroom powder, or paprika, whatever you prefer here. For the wet ingredients, this is where the yeast is going to come in. You're going to need 12 grams of active dry yeast, 
piece. One and a half cups of warm water or about 365 grams. And then to that, you're gonna add a tablespoon of sugar and you can just stir that all together. And you wanna make sure that your water is warm. You wanna make sure that it's no warmer than, I think it's 110 degrees, 120 degrees, but basically just warm enough to where you can feel it on the back of your finger. And then for the other wet ingredients, this is to add to the dough later. You're gonna need three fourths of a cup unsalted butter that's melted. It's about two sticks. So I usually use two sticks of earth balance butter. And then you'll need 80 grams or six tablespoons of grapeseed oil. I detest the taste of olive oil. Just had really bad experiences with it and it never has been to my palate. I prefer grapeseed oil. You can use whatever neutral oil you like here or just basic vegetable oil or canola oil, but I always go for grape. And then you're gonna need four large eggs if you're not allergic or you're not vegan or four egg replacers. I have grown to really love Bob's Red Milk Egg Replacer. I think it's made out of Facilum Husk. I haven't checked. It's been on my list of things to do. It gets gelatinous in the way that egg whites do. If I mean, you have to know what I'm talking about. Like that weird springy, wet gelatinous texture. It does that perfectly. And the only thing I can think of that would do that is Facilum Husk. So I've quite fallen in love with it. Um, it works just the same as eggs. I wouldn't recommend like sauteing it or anything, but for an egg replacer in a baking dish, it's perfect. And then for the filling, you can use 18 pieces of sausage and some grated cheese or a fruit filling of your choice. Fruit and jam like apples and orange marmalade, raspberry preserve and strawberries, blueberries with blackberry, you know, the list goes on. And this is a pretty straightforward recipe. I mean, the hardest part honestly is just getting the ingredients together and letting your yeast rise. In a large bowl, or the bowl of a stand mixer with a paddle attachment, you're going to combine the bread flour, sugar, salt, and spices. In a separate bowl, go ahead and add your warm water, sugar, and yeast, and allow the yeast to bloom and bubble. This will show that it's alive. Let it sit for 10 minutes, and if there's no activity, then you need to start over with new yeast, as the yeast that you used at first wasn't active. In a separate bowl, make your eggs by combining the water and powder, and allow that to sit as well. You can use flax eggs here. I have just found that they don't work as well because while they do get gelatinous, they don't have the same elasticity as the egg replacer does. So I really do recommend buying the Bob's Red Mill egg replacer. And you can use it for other things too. So you can use it to like bread tofu or bread zucchini and make fried foods or, you know, pan fried things. It really is necessary in my opinion. In a another bowl, a lot of bowls here, you're going to combine your melted butter and your neutral oil. And if you're using a mixer at this point, go ahead and turn it to speed one and slowly add in the butter and oil until it's combined. Continue on speed one and stream in the flax eggs mixture or your regular just egg replacement until it just comes together. Then add the yeast and water mixture. If you're mixing by hand, add in each in the order aforementioned and combine really slowly with your hands or a wooden spoon or a Danish loop whisk. We love a Danish loop whisk. Then you'll lightly oil a bowl and put your dough inside. I usually use Pam, I'm not gonna lie, or like a avocado oil spray or a sunflower oil spray and I'll just lightly spritz the inside of a bowl and then cover it with a towel. And then you'll set it in a warm place to rise for an hour and a half. Usually this works in the oven, turned off with the light on, or I put mine on top of the fridge because the fridge gets a little bit warm, but not too hot, so that works for me. And then you're just gonna let it sit for a bit and let it chill. And then for the filling, it's really simple. You just slice your sausage and have your shredded cheese at the ready, or you can mix your fruit with your jam preserves. If you wanna add spices to the cheese, you can as well. So I'll usually add things like garlic salt, minced onion, you know, that kind of thing. 
and some MSG. We do love some MSG here, not gonna lie. If you're worried about that, then you should really look up the history of MSG and how it became villainized. It's incredibly fascinating. Um, it, there are no proven studies that show that it is detrimental for the body in the way that a lot of people believe it is. There are people who have MSG allergies, but the mass majority of people who are afraid of eating MSG or who have vilified it, it has no claim. It's all a conspiracy, but it actually stems from some pretty interesting historical concepts that I won't go into here, but I might as this podcast progresses because as I moved to China, I plan and I'm discussing the cultural differences between food and life and mental illness over there. So that's the direction this podcast is heading. If you've listened this far, it's a little tidbit for you. And yeah, we'll be heading in that direction. And after season one of this show ends, we'll be talking more about cultural diversity and what it means to exist in a place where you are a minority when you're used to being the majority. I'm not going to lie. I am a white American and I am used to a certain number of privileges, albeit I am a female and I am I'm part of the LGBTQ community, different different set of things. Yeah, I'm used to not being judged by the color of my skin and because of the way I look on, on the outside, but um, I know that won't be the case when I go to China. So I plan on talking about that because the city I'm going to, Shanghai, is one of the largest in the world. However, foreigners only make up, I think it's half a percent of the population there. And so... I mean, out of 25 million people in the city, that's still a lot of people, but compared to the rest of the city, 99.5% of people are Chinese and Han Chinese. So it's just, I plan on talking about what that what that feels like and, and what xenophobia looks like and the difference between foods and allergies and how they treat everything. So that's where this podcast is going side tangent aside. So once your dough has risen, you're going to want to form your kolaches. Or you can just be like a lunatic and let your bread continue to rise until it's way, way, way too fluffy. You're going to take a quarter cup scoop. Usually I use an old-fashioned ice cream scoop or a large wooden spoon, and I divide the dough into balls. This batch will make anywhere from 15 to 18 kolaches, depending upon the size. I usually go with 15 to be safe, just so I have enough dough to fit around the sausages themselves. You're gonna take them, and then you're going to put them on a sheet of parchment paper, and I usually press them into the shape of a rectangle. Gluten-free dough is not known for its ability to roll or stay together well, and while this dough does roll, there is only so much manhandling it can take and so I usually press them into the rectangular shape versus rolling them and they should be three inches wide and about five to six inches long. On one end of this rectangle you're going to place your filling. So I do cheese first and then I do sausage. Then you'll carefully roll it onto itself and set it onto a baking sheet lined with parchment paper and I usually cook about nine per sheet. I put it seam side down and I allow it to rest on that seam so it stays fully intact. Once all of these have been rolled allow them to sit under a tea towel for about 30 minutes. Meanwhile, preheat your oven to 350 Fahrenheit or 165 degrees Celsius. Before putting the kolaches in the oven, brush with a little bit of oil and sprinkle with a smidge of flaky salt on top for the savory ones or turbinado sugar for the sweet ones. At this point too, you can also put extra seasoning on top. So if you're basic like me, 
I usually put onion salt, garlic salt, or everything bagel seasoning. I just find it to be really good. You could press in sesame seeds or chopped nuts or something to add a little bit of texture like rice crumbs. Honestly, the world is your oyster at this point. You're going to then pop them in the oven and bake for 12 minutes and then rotate and bake for another seven. As soon as they're golden on top and they look done, you can take them out and transfer the kolaches to a wire rack. It is imperative that you do this immediately, otherwise they'll have a soggy bottom and no one likes a soggy bottom. You can eat these while they're warm and just enjoy them. If you make them with vegan cheese, do be aware that the vegan cheese <laughs> may feel crispy on the outside, but that has to do with the oil and the way it settles within the bread, but it tends to be incredibly stretchy and smooth on the inside. I recommend using Violife for this. Again, not sponsored, I just really love Violife. Or Dea. Dea actually just came out with um, cheese sticks and I've been experimenting with those and they melt quite well and they hold their shape quite well. They don't have the iconic pull of mozzarella sticks, but they do melt into a pool of cheese goo, <laughs> if that's what you're looking for. These also can be frozen immediately and kept in the fridge wrapped in paper towel as well if you prefer for, for this week's mental illness or dive into the DSM-5. We're going to be talking about a couple of things that go together. We're going to talk about body dysmorphic disorder as well as gender dysphoria. So let's talk about body dysmorphic disorder. It tends to coincide with gender dysphoria, especially when it comes to the LGBTQ community. But I want to note that this is not just singled out to that community. It can occur in anyone. It can occur in someone who is older, who doesn't see their body age the way it is. And so they see themselves as their younger self. And so their brain can't wrap around the reality of what they're seeing in front of them. It can occur in someone who who has an eating disorder, it can occur in someone who's had a baby and gained weight. These things can occur in so many different people and that's the body dysmorphic part of it. The gender dysphoria, it stems from a place of hating a part of one's body that is typically associated with one's gender that they've been assigned at birth. For instance, wanting to chop off your breasts or you know, have different genitals or to look differently, more masculine and more feminine. And not everyone wants this for those reasons and dysphoria isn't just relegated to gendered things like that. Like me, for instance, I, I've i never felt male or female, but that has to do with the gendered society we live in. And I've never liked my breasts. Like I would gladly chop them off and donate them to someone who needs them, <laughs> but that can't be done. But that's a sign of gender dysphoria, right? It's not necessarily body dysmorphic disorder, but it's also a sign of distress. So despite my poorly done introduction, let's dive deeper into body dysmorphic disorder or a BDD. So BDD is a mental health disorder in which you can't stop thinking about one or more perceived defects or flaws in your appearance. A flaw that appears minor or can't be seen by others, but you may feel so embarrassed, ashamed, and anxious that you may avoid many social situations. When you have body dysmorphic disorder, you intensely focus on your appearance and body image, repeatedly checking the mirror, grooming, or seeking reassurance, sometimes for many hours or days. Your perceived flaw and the repetitive behaviors cause you significant distress and impact your ability to function in your daily life. You may seek out numerous cosmetic procedures to try to fix your perceived flaw and afterward you may feel temporary satisfaction or a reduction in your distress but often the anxiety returns and you may resume searching for other ways to fix your perceived flaw and this is where it differs from dysphoria a lot of people who suffer with dysphoria usually can heal after seeking out ways to try and fix or alter this perceived flaw and it's not a flaw it's just something that causes the person significant mental distress so for instance
happens if someone who doesn't like their chest has top surgery or a double mastectomy and they have a flat chest, usually that'll help to alleviate some stress and it won't cause them to have any more distress around the shape of their chest. They may still have some dysphoria when it comes to people touching their chest or not wearing a shirt in public and that kind of thing, but it tends to be a lot more freeing and a lot more easier to heal from and to overcome than body dysmorphic disorder, which usually occurs again and again. So if someone doesn't like their ears, for instance, they might have surgery to reduce the size or to change the shape, and it might be good for a while, but there will come a point where it's no longer good and they'll start to see those old defects and flaws around their ear, and so they have to go back and have corrective surgery to make that even more emphasized to where they can't see that perceived flaw. That's kind of the difference between the two, and I'm not explaining it incredibly well, and I apologize for that because they overlap so much, but the difference is that body dysmorphic disorder usually is reoccurring and gender dysphoria is reoccurring but not in the same way. It usually comes in stages and in waves and it's different from person to person. Treatment of both, however, may include cognitive behavioral therapy as well as medication. And mainly the medication is to treat the distress and the anxiety and the depression that stem from it. So some signs and symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder include being extremely preoccupied with perceived flaw and appearance that to others can't be seen or appears minor. A strong belief that you have a defect in your appearance and that makes you ugly or deformed, belief that others take special notice of your appearance in a negative way to mock you, engaging in behaviors aimed at fixing or hiding the flaw, that are difficult to resist or control, such as frequently checking the mirror, grooming, or skin picking, attempting to hide perceived flaws with styling, makeup, or clothes, constantly comparing your appearance with others, frequently seeking reassurance about your appearance from others, having perfectionistic tendencies, seeking cosmetic procedures with little satisfaction, or avoiding social situations in total. Preoccupation with your appearance and excessive thoughts and repetitive behaviors can be unwanted, difficult to control, and very time-consuming to the point where they can cause major distress or problems in your social life, work, school, or other areas of functioning. You may excessively focus over one or more parts of your body. The feature that you focus on may change over time, and the most common features people tend to fixate on include your face, such as your nose, complexion, wrinkles, acne, and other blemishes, hair, such as appearance, thinning, and baldness, skin and vein appearance, breast size, muscle size and tone, and genitalia. A preoccupation with your body build being too small or not muscular enough, muscle dysmorphia, occurs almost exclusively in males. You may recognize your beliefs about your perceived flaws may be excessive or not be true, or think that they probably are true, or be absolutely convinced that they are absolutely 100% true. The more convinced you are of your beliefs, the more distress and disruption you may experience in your life. Diagnosing BDD. So to diagnose it, the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria should be followed. So it classifies BDD in the chapter of obsessive, compulsive, and related disorders along with OCD and several other disorders. The diagnostic criteria for BDD requires the following appearance preoccupations, repetitive behaviors, clinical significance, differentiation from an eating disorder, and other specifiers. So once BDD is diagnosed, clinicians should assess the two DSM-5 BDD specifier to identify meaningful subgroups of individuals with BDD, such as muscle dysmorphia or an insight specifier. So this specifier indicates the degree of insight regarding BDD's beliefs. For example, I look ugly or I look deformed. Neither of them are good, but one is to a lesser degree than the other, which is to say how convinced the individual is that their belief about the appearance of the disliked body part is true. BDD can also be misdiagnosed as another disorder. 
If it is misdiagnosed, patients may not receive appropriate care or improve with the treatment that's provided. BDD is commonly misdiagnosed as one of the following disorders. OCD, social anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, trichotillomania, which is hair pulling disorder, excoriation, which is a skin picking disorder, agoraphobia, which we covered in a previous episode, so if you want to know more about that, you can go back. Generalized anxiety disorder, schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder, olfactory reference syndrome, which is a preoccupation with emitting a foul or unpleasant body odor, an eating disorder, or a dysmorphic concern. So this is not a DSM diagnosis, but it is sometimes confused with BDD. It focuses on appearance concerns, but also concerns about body odor and non-appearance related somatic concerns, which are not BDD. I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that a lot of patients with BDD do not spontaneously reveal their symptoms to their clinician because they're too embarrassed and ashamed, and they fear being negatively judged. They feel the clinician will not understand their appearance concerns or don't know the body image concerns are treatable with psychiatric medication or therapy. Yet, research has shown that patients want their clinician to ask them about BDD symptoms. It is especially important to acquire about BDD symptoms in mental health settings, substance abuse settings, and settings where cosmetic treatment is provided. Especially because a lot of the time people with BDD don't actually know that they have this disorder. They think that everyone has one part of their body that they just hate. I mean, it seems so easy to tell ourselves this this lie, right? I hate how spaced apart my eyes are. Everyone must have something like that. Or, you know, my ears are so big I can't wear hats. Everyone must have something that they just they just hate about their body or, or I don't like my feet or you know there are different parts of your body that you just pick apart and you feel like everyone has that and to some extent they do but it's not to the point where they want to get rid of the thing right you just kind of accept that all humans are different and you have this one thing you have to deal with and you get on with it but bdd is way more intense than that and so it can be easy to fall into that trap of ah this intense hatred i have for my chest it's normal everyone has something like that dude he hates his toes he probably wants to drop off his toes he doesn't so it's easy to believe that we are not extreme when it comes to our body image when in in fact we are. So it helps when a clinician actually reaches out and talks about it first in a non-judgmental way because it opens the door for us to talk about insecurities that we may have uh, surrounding things that we have no control over, right? Like you can't control the placement of your teeth. You can get braces, but it still may not be the way you want them to be. You can't control how pointy your ears are. You can't control how spaced apart your eyes are. You can't control if you were born with a double eyelid, if you want a monolid. Uh, You can't control your receding hairline. You can't control the way your feet are shaped. (laughs) I mean, there are certain things that are just that just happen. As you go through life, your body becomes a, a declaration of the things that you've done and gone through and every scar and mark becomes a point of reference for a time that you did something, right? And you have no control over that history that exists externally and so it's very hard to come to terms with. But when a clinician asks about those things, it opens the door and allows you to talk deeper about what's going on internally. Now, let's talk about the LGBTQ and body dysmorphia. Before we delve into this topic, I want to talk about the fact that I am not talking about gender dysphoria, which is the incongruence someone can face when their internal experience of gender 
does not match the gender assigned to them at birth. Some, though not all, transgender people experience gender dysphoria. Instead, I'm talking about body dysmorphic disorder, which is marked by an obsession with perceived flaws in one's physical appearance, such as muscular physique or skin blemishes. So this is a piece that I've taken from a website online that I will link in the show notes, but it is an article that is written by a a wonderful person who is transgender, and they talk about their experience with BDD and being in the LGBTQ community and how it was misunderstood because people just automatically assumed it was gender dysphoria. So that's what this is. While BDD may impact anyone, people in the LGBTQ community may be at higher risk of facing this diagnosis. BDD can be life-altering, leading to social isolation, severe depression, and or multiple unnecessary cosmetic surgeries. Some men with BDD experience a specific type called muscle dysmorphia, in which they believe their body is not muscular or lean enough. Muscle dysmorphia can lead to illegal drug use to enhance muscle tone. In 2014, a study found that steroid use is four times higher among gay and bi teen boys compared to straight boys. So what is causing these higher rates of BDD in the LGBTQ community? One part of the problem is the way that media shows idealized and unrealistic pictures of LGBTQ people. As writer Michael Abernathy observed, magazines aimed at gay men present retouched images of gym bunny models with washboard abs, glittering white teeth, and hair that is teased to the sky. Undoubtedly, these unattainable ideals about what someone should look like get internalized and in some cases contribute to the development of BDD. Eating disorders, or ED, are different from BDD, but they can occur together. We know that members of the LGBTQ community suffer from ED at disproportionately high rates rates, but culturally competent help is available. For the trans slash gender diverse, a wealth of knowledge and support is available through TFEED, which stands for Trans Folks Fighting Eating Disorders. Though it can feel like an alphabet soup, these acronyms help us to spread the word. Devastating disorders like BDD and ED are impacting too many LGBTQ people. Yet, regardless of label or identity, we can all unite to work to reduce the barriers to treatment for people living with these challenges. And we've had many tangents already, so why don't we go down another one? I think the representation of the LGBTQ community in media is vastly off the mark. Um, Like that writer said, the representation of the gay youth, the gay babies out there, is so off. I mean, it never shows anyone who's older in the LGBTQ community, and this is true of media across the board. You don't see people aging. You just see people stop at 40, and then suddenly they're grandparents. Like, what happens in those 30 years, right? Like, you just don't stop living your life after you turn 40. It's ridiculous. But with the LGBTQ community, it is almost exacerbated. Like, we are celebrated in our youth, and that's it. You don't see adult gay people living their lives who aren't thin, white, mid to upper class people who can afford to do things and get away and to go to parties and to host. And the representation is not accurate at all. The majority of LGBTQ people I know aren't thin, white dudes. They are Latino. They are black, they are plus size, they are mentally atypical people, and people who are emotionally and exponentially diverse. And so to not see the stories of these people represented in media is really heartbreaking because it almost erases the future for people who don't look like that. You don't see, I mean, I don't see people like me represented, which is fine. (laughs) I have a bunch of different identities outside of being LGBTQ, but it erases the history and the narrative of the people who have come before us and the people who will come after us because a lot of people feel like they're not going to 
live past a certain age or that after you reach a certain age that's it like you've expired your youth is over and there's nothing to celebrate anymore it's very problematic because it is not only driving these disorders but it's also providing a misrepresentation of what we're for and what the lgbtq community stands for and it's not just to be there to be a token or to be the fun person it's to provide an insight into how to be a human and how to live life right there's no one way to be in this world and that's the beauty of being human it's also part of the chaos of it in trying to coexist with one another but it is the beauty of what it means to be in a community is that no one looks alike and there is a multitude of identities within a single umbrella term and those identities are being done in injustice by not being represented people of color black folk trans folk indigenous communities two-spirit communities there's there's so much richness that exists in the human condition and in human nature and it's just not being represented in media and it's it's a problem and i think people my age are changing that i recently found out that i am i'm not a millennial technically they redefine the generations and i am gen z and i don't know what to do with this information because i don't know how to use tiktok like i've identified as a non-millennial millennial for so long to be reclassified as bizarre but i think that people of now my generation because i'm Gen Z, we're reclaiming what that means to be representative media. If there is no representation, we are going to make sure that we are represented. And I feel that there is a sense of hope and it's realistic. There are many things about this world and this life we can't change, but there is a hope about the things that we can change in a sense of we are going to fight for that change. I imagine it's what the people who were in their teens and 20s and 30s throughout the 50s and 60s in America and other places in the world felt when they were trying to fight for equality. Quality. And albeit that it didn't go as far as it should have, quite honestly. We should have fought for more. I can only imagine that it feels quite like that. You are hopeful and hopeless all at the same time and looking forward to what will be coming next for the future generations because of all the ones that have gone before you and because of what you're actively doing now. And that's just in the human condition and in communities and trying to make sure that everyone's represented under this umbrella of what it is to be alive today. But I think that there's only so much we can do, right? We talk about representation but then there's also <laughs> the hopeless feeling that arises when you talk about the environment and it almost feels like ah well we're we're essentially you know we're doomed so why should we do anything but i think that having that sense of apathy and that willful ignorance to just continue on a hedonistic lifestyle without actually contemplating what you can do for those around you is type of incompetence and insolence that i can't get on board with like yeah i'm i feel hopeless about the future 110 percent. but it's not the collective future i feel hopeful for humans as a whole to figure something out and yeah i think it's going to take something catastrophic in order to make us realize the value of what we have going on and, and the value of who we are in society but i think that it has always taken something big in order to unite people i thought it would be covid um, but it's not it's been turned into a political statement especially in the u.s but i think outside of that you know we have each other and we are here to make sure that different people and the, the communities that have been overlooked for so long and the age groups and the disabled groups that have been overlooked for so long are represented and that can only lead to more change in other areas right um this idea of intersectionality 
is not new and it's something that should be talked about and incorporated in way more things. Yeah, that was a tangent, but let's get to my favorite part of the podcast. Body dysmorphic disorder, according to the Urban Dictionary, is a psychiatric condition in which the affected person suffers from a flawed perception that views some part of the body or physical feature to be defective or unsightly, although an objective observer would not share this said opinion. While some people assume that female breasts are disproportionately the feature in question, in fact, persons with body dysmorphic disorder tend to report dissatisfaction with facial features more frequently. An example they gave is Madeline suffered from body dysmorphic disorder. She thought her cute Gaelic nose was an unsightly and grotesquely large beak. I think that goes to show like you can look at the mirror and you can see something entirely different, right? You can be 110 pounds and look at the mirror and see yourself as 190 and that goes for almost anyone outside of any event that you've had. This is often felt too when you've just had a baby and you have the extra weight or if you've gone through a traumatic time where you haven't been able to be active and you've gained weight or a multitude of other things. That was this week's episode and I hope you learned something. If you make the kolaches, let me know. They're probably one of my favorite things. I have tons in my freezer right now. I hope your weekend goes well and you get some rest and that the weather is nice wherever you're at. If you are in Asia or in a place that celebrates autumn, please get something festive and autumnal for me. And to everyone, I'll catch you next week. Bye.